you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, as we've been going through Exodus, where we've been seeing uh, the effect of the Lord's display of His sovereign rule wear off in both the Pharaoh, in both Pharaoh and the Israelites, yet that did seem to work for their, yet what seemed to work for their destruction worked for their deliverance at the Red Sea, where the Egyptian enemies met their final defeat. And now they, we, last uh, week we observed, or the week before, we observed the glorious effects of the Lord's redemption of the Israelites out of the hand of Pharaoh and his army, where they broke out in song and praise. And yet now as we uh, quickly turn to the end of chapter 15, we see where the people again forget the Lord who has delivered them. And Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22, is kind of like this precipice of a, of a, of a downward trajectory. Not, not necessarily um, for the purposes of God, but for the people of Israel as we see them here at this high moment of praise at the edge of the Red Sea where they're praising the Lord for His redemption in Egypt, only to be met with trial and testing and to fail and fail and fail again. As a matter of fact, this uh, small portion here of Exodus at the end of 15 through the beginning of 17 um, narrates to us or tells us of these uh, three instances where the Israelites fail in their testing, yet the Lord is faithful to His promises. And as it relates also to a understanding of these passages in light of all of Scripture, Exodus 15, I just chose the next five verses because once we get into 16, uh, the all of redemption, not that it's not open to us in Exodus 15, but in a in a very glorious display, all of the story of redemption opens to us in the next couple chapters as Scripture seems to refer back to this time and time again as a display of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people so that it is Him to be the object of faith and not our own faithfulness. We'll follow along as I read for us Exodus 15, beginning in verse 22 through verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on which you on which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms. 
and they camp there beside the waters. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help one more time this morning. Oh Lord, we come before you now having the word read to us in anticipation that you will work through your servant. You will work through as many weaknesses, as many failings, as many anxieties, Lord. Even, Lord, often to his own shame as many grumblings to bring about this means of grace to your people that they may be fed upon the exposition of your word rightly to the joy and to your glo- to their joy and to your glory we ask these things in Christ's name amen well this morning we having ascended out of the sea as i said with the israelites we now follow them into the wilderness, for they had camped on the edge of the wilderness. Now they have gone into the wilderness. And so as we follow them into the wilderness, I want us to uh, have this in mind, that the Christian is to put away grumbling and look to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the Christian is to put away grumbling and to look to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here the biblical author sees that this rebellion in direct contrast to the grace and favor that Yahweh has bestowed upon the people. So this episode is also to be seen by way of antithesis to the preceding scene of joyful singing. And what a contrast it is from the joy and worship of singing to the grumbling and complaining of heart. And it reminds me of, uh, many of you know, that my uh, secular vocation as a bivocational minister is a, uh, I work for the Kern County Fire Department. And we are taught in the academy and even further on in further um, education about the stages of fire growth. And there is essentially uh, four stages of fire growth. The first stage is the incipient stage, and that's where you smell smoke, as, as, you, as we say. It's where the fire is just beginning to ignite. It's followed by the growth stage, where the flames take hold and begin to burn the fuel. Though it's still small, and both the incipient and the growth stage are, are our goal is to get the fire in that stage because it's the easiest time to put it out. But these stages are followed by the fully developed stage. This is the stage in which draws the, uh, the media attention. It gets the people to slow down on the freeway because the, the uh, uh, vehicle is fully involved and engulfed with flames. It's the free burning stage of the fire. It's the place where in the fire department world we don't engage internally we we protect that from spreading to other things that's followed by the decay stage and this is when the fire is fully consumed all the fuel 
and just dies out, leaving obviously a wake of destruction behind it. And so as we look at this idea or this narrative of the Israelites here in the wilderness of Shur, we may liken it to the growth stage, the fire growth stages, where it begins with an incipient smell of smoke or of sin. It grows and, and the flames take hold. And yet we won't fully get there here this morning, but eventually we're going to get to when it takes full development in this generation when they wholly disobey the Lord and do not enter into the land at Kadesh Barnea, where the fire of sin and rebellion consumes this generation only for them to finally fall after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of God's judgment in that decay stage. And so it's important for us to pay attention here in the incipient stage of this sin. Because if we can pay attention to the incipient stages of this sin, by God's grace, he may work in us the ability to locate it and to snuff it out before it grows in and takes hold anymore. And so as what when we approach this passage, what we will be doing is we'll be taking it in part, and instead of saving all the juicy conclusions to the end, I thought that each part had its own direct application and conclusion. And so we'll be doing that this morning. We'll be looking at their setting out. We'll be looking at this idea of the Lord testing him or where he proved them. We'll certainly be looking at their grumbling. We'll be looking at this tree that sweetened the water. And then finally, we'll look at their final place of rest in Elim. And so we begin this morning by looking here in verse 22 where they set out. And it's the style of the initial phrase of this verse that is unusual because it employs a causative verb. In other words, that it, it would literally mean Moses caused Israel to set out. And we may come to this conclusion that the Israelites, based on their reaction in the wilderness displayed a lack of desire to pursue the way of the Lord to the intended end the Lord had for them. That, that it, is, it was for them to meet with the Lord at Sinai and worship him as they told Pharaoh that we need to go three days journey into the wilderness and worship our Lord. But to the greater end, that they would go on and ultimately take hold of the promised land. And so in this setting out, just from the beginning, that, that first smolder of fire of sin comes when they're desiring to not go, but to wait, to have to be spurred on to, the, to their intended end. Because as we had said, they, they weren't redeemed out of Egypt for the sake of overcoming slavery or oppression. They were redeemed out of Egypt to be God's people and for God to be their God and then ultimately for them to take hold of the blessings promised them here in the land of Canaan. But here we find that their eyes had seemingly lost sight of that land which was promised to them for a wilderness stood between them and it. Here their three days journey into the wilderness. And it says that 
uh, our, uh, Robert Hawker comments, he says, Oh, lead me on to Canaan until the happy hour shall come when I shall have done with all things here below. Enable me by faith amidst all changing providences to live upon an unchangeable God and let faith give me a present enjoyment of the good things to come. Let me see Jesus in everything and his wisdom and love and faithfulness mingled with every dispensation or every circumstance. And let my whole being be reminded of that which is contained in the scriptures, namely out of 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Consider the eyes of Israel here. Their desire, uh, their, their need for Moses to spur them on from the edge of the wilderness and into the wilderness. And we know that they had lost sight of the land because immediately when they're beset with this problem of not having any water. And it wasn't a small problem. We have to recognize that their lack of water was a lack of water after three days in a barren land. It's not like they went for a walk and they just forgot to bring water. There was no water to have. There was uh, hundreds of thousands of people. There were numerous livestock, both domestic and their shepherding uh, livestock. And they had no water for three days. But the spurring of them into that wilderness is because when they were met with that, their response was grumbling against the Lord or grumbling against the Lord's mediator, Moses. And so for us, as we see this uh, spurring on, that we too ought to be spurred on this moment, this day, to look not to this world and what it has to offer us, these temporal good things that the Lord provides, not to hold them in a way that they have any eternal weight, but to let go of them for the greater good, the greater land, the greater possession that we have in Christ. Things which cannot be seen, but can only be apprehended by faith. So may we in this first incipient stage, See that we ought to let go of the things of this world such that we hold them in no way as a measure of our relationship to God or God's relationship to us. So that if we're lacking, we think God loves us less. Or if he takes away, he's uh, angry at us. Nor should we see if we are in abundance that somehow we're living some exemplary Christian life and the Lord is blessing us with these temporal things but that we hold them all in stewardness both whether in lack or in abundance we are all provided all that we are needed 
whether those in abundance who ought to be ready to share with those in lack, and those in lack ought not to despise those who have been given much. But we all trust the Lord, looking far beyond what we can see to that heavenly land. And so may we snuff out these first signs of sin, these first signs of unbelief, by letting go of the things of this world and holding on by faith to our Savior and His blessings. But we see that what the Lord had for them in the wilderness was something intentional. Because we know they didn't make a mistake going into the wilderness. They didn't choose their own path. They're still following the, flame, the, the smoking pot by day and the flaming furnace by night. And the flaming, uh, and this uh, theophany, this appearing of the Lord, guides them where he desires. And here he desires them to go into the wilderness, and not just any part of the wilderness. He desires them to go into a barren land where there is no water. And where, there, and where water is, it's actually bitter and they are unable to drink of it and benefit from it. And so we see that in, in, uh, in the New American Standard, it says, and there he tested them in verse 25. I like the, uh, translate, the King James translation here where it says, there he proved them. Because um, when you test somebody, in our connotation I think we have is that we're testing them for something that they have. The knowledge they have, you're, you're testing them to see if they can pass a driving test, pass a math test. You're being tested in that way. But from something is proved, it is showing its uh, purity. It is, it is, we're trying to draw out something from that thing. And so we, when there he proved them, it's very much likened Again, as it, it's likened in other places of Scripture, where the Lord um, purifies. He's, he's, he seeks to do away with the dross. He puts the, the precious metal in the furnace so that the purity of the metal may come out. And so here he proves them to show them what is according to their nature. Psalm 139 is... Uh, 24 verses long. Turn with me to Psalm 129 and we'll look at it briefly. We'll just be looking at the last couple verses together. But it's 24 verses long. 18 of these verses are indicatives. They're things you ought to know. They're, they're, They're truisms. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. The Lord knows all things before they come to pass. The Lord is not waiting and hoping beyond all hope that you'll just do the right thing, or He's not just waiting for you, for He knows. He knows you better than you know yourself. 
Because even before there is a word on your tongue, behold, behold, the Lord knows it all. The conclusion in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Certainly the finite mind cannot contain the infinite knowledge of our God. It continues on. Now, if you know me completely, you know my going ins and my coming out. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere is the answer. And so we have this omniscient God who knows all things. We have this omnipresent God who is everywhere. And I think we know that that should cause a certain set, a, a certain amount of introspection for us, that if God knows our inner thoughts, He knows everything that comes out of our mouth, which we're not always proud of. He knows everything that we do with our hands and feet and our bodies, which we're not always proud of. But He also knows everything that you think and you feel, which we ought not to be proud of. And so we have to consider that His knowledge and His presence is a thing that is, is threatening to one who is uncovered. And yet it says in verse 13, You have formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when it was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. We consider that God knows all things and is everywhere present at the same time. And in light of that, it brings substantial value to our being, to our existence. For this is the God who ordains all that comes to pass. And this is a God whose thoughts are precious to us for those that know the thoughts of the Lord are those that know in by faith that they may be covered in the sun so that those thoughts are ones of peace and grace and mercy. So then we desire that the Lord would do away with his enemies. All that, that besets us as the people of God. Lord, do away with them. Slay the wicked. Judge your enemies. And then finally, in verses 23 and 24... Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's a prayer that 
we should not take lightly as believers to ask the God of heaven who knows all things and is everywhere present to search us, to try us, and know our anxious thoughts, to prove us as he proved the Israelites here. To be led in the everlasting way is to be led in the way of faith. For if when we meet the proving of God as the Israelites did, I hope we don't just point a finger at them and say, Oh, shameful Israel, how could you grumble against your Lord for Look at the wonderful things he just did for you. If I had seen the plagues of Egypt, if I had seen the waters parted, I would not have grumbled at the lack of water. May we be humbled and know that as the Lord searches us and tries us, he too will find many corruptions, many weaknesses, many grumblings. It was the Lord that took Israel through to those waters on purpose to prove to them that the Lord may answer you in a way of which you little dream. He may conduct you to some waters of Marah that you may that may test you and prove you. I can only imagine their eyes that laid upon this something of an oasis in Marah, which uh, is a um, uh, let's call it a redacted name. In other words, it didn't get its name until they got there and found out the water was bitter. And so that before it was Marah, it was their deliverance from their thirst. There was water in the desert. And they approached it and they came to it. And it must have been of some amount. Because eventually this water satisfies their thirst. So they have this water before them. They find it. And yet they find that they cannot drink it. And so they call it bitter. Here we see the providence of God for the bitterness of the water was a reflection of the bitterness of their souls and their hearts to God. For when they cry out to Moses, they don't cry to Moses like the faithful cry of Sarah, who wonders at how this could be that her and her advanced age could bear a child. They don't cry out uh, like Mary, who when she's when the Holy Spirit conceives a child in her, and she wonders how can this be in faith? No, they are similar to... John the Baptist's father who says, how can this be? And he's muted by God for not believing that the Lord can do all things. But here it, it takes root in first the bitterness of their heart and needing to be spurred on from the Red Sea and now coming to this body of water and finding it bitter. They find that that they ought to have been taught the lesson that these waters were a reflection of their hearts. And so out of that heart, that bitter heart, comes grumbling. This grumbling here, we find this fire, this, this sin begins to grow and take hold in them. 
Grumbling is essentially sinful unbelief. It is saying to the Lord that his providence is not for your good and will not work ultimately for his glory. Or if it does, you don't want it. Such that every complaint against our circumstances, every grumble about the weather, about the way people treat us, about the daily trials of life is directed against the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Do we see how grumbling is so contrary to our new nature? It is so rooted in our old nature? Because grumbling has a tendency or has, will, will eventually bear a, bit, a larger fruit of hating God and hating our neighbor. For we're either, we're either eventually directly grumbling against God or grumbling against our fellow man. Grumbling is essentially a sinful unbelief. It is also looking upon the things of this world and what it has to offer with the eyes of our former nature. A.W. Pink makes this observation. He says, the natu- To the natural man, the world offers much that is attractive and alluring. But the spiritual man, all in it is only vanity and vexation of spirit, as it says in Ecclesiastes. To the eye of sense, there is much in the world that is pleasant and pleasing, but the eye of faith sees nothing but death written across the whole scene. Change and decay in all around I see. It has much which ministers to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, but nothing whatever for the new nature So far as the spiritual life is concerned, the world is simply a wilderness, barren and desolate. Here the people of Israel come to these bitter waters. And instead of seeking what the Lord will do in their time of need, in their time of thirst, they cry out and they grumble to God through Moses. Often when we are tried and tested, we find that the old man, though dead, can have a firm grip at times. The old man can seem to have a a firm grip on our emotions and our affections such that we grumble and complain. We look upon our circumstances of life and don't think this is for my good and God's glory. We look upon them and think, how could this ever be so? We may fall into it further and say, I don't deserve this. We may fall into it more and more further like Job's wife, curse God and die. But this grumbling is that beginning of the fire of sin here in the Israelites and we'll see this this somewhat progression of it as it they stumble and they grumble and they grumble and then we see it break out in false worship and idol worship at Sinai and it and as bad as that is it comes into full flower when they deny the word of their lord and don't take possession of the land 
So if the bitter waters are an example of the bitter hearts of the Israelites, which is a it's, which is which can be seen as a picture of the natural man, we should come to an easy conclusion that the tree that the Lord shows Moses through revelation, what's not known to natural man, the Lord reveals specially to Moses and then is cast into the water and does what? Makes it new. Makes it drinkable. That this tree is Christ, both in his person and in his work. But I don't just say this out of some wonderful imagination. I say this because scripture speaks of Christ as a tree. We heard it last week when Brother Aaron preached out of Psalm 1 and Psalm 1-3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In a lesser known place, one eventually we will get to, I'm sure, and preach it as a Christian, the Song of Solomon, where we see a... A wondrous picture of Christ and his church. It says in Song of Solomon 2.3, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So as we see the bitterness of the old man creep into our thoughts and our affections. Maybe it takes hold to the point of grumbling. I think we need to consider our relationship to our Savior in those moments. We need to consider how we stand before God and who, what is our place before God because if we're able to see that, then by God's grace, we may be overcome with thankfulness to God and gratefulness for bestowing that upon us by grace alone. Jeremiah Burroughs gets this. He says, the relation in which you stand to Jesus Christ, you are the spouse of Christ. What? One married to Jesus Christ and yet troubled and discontented? Have you not enough in him? Does not Christ say to his spouse, as Elkaniah said to Hannah, Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So does not Christ, your husband, say to you, Am I not better to you than thousands of riches and comforts, such comforts as you murmur for and want of? Has not God given you his son? Will he not with him give you all things? Has the love of God to you been such as to give you his son in marriage? Why are you discontented and murmuring? Consider your relation to Jesus Christ as a spouse and married to him. His person is yours. And so all the riches of Jesus Christ are yours as the riches of a husband are his wife's. Brothers and sisters. To overcome grumbling and bitterness is not going to be by us lifting ourselves out or figuring out a solution to these bitter waters. But as a look to the one who has enjoined himself to us 
in this glorious marriage of the Lamb. So that we have all things in Christ necessary for our good and His glory. And as we will see when it comes to the manna, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack, and every man gathered as much as he should eat. But the fire was kindled in the Israelites. They cried out against Moses. And Moses, as their great mediator, cried out to the Lord. He did what they ought to have done. And it was by that the Lord blesses them through Moses' mediation, providing a tree to turn the bitter waters into sweet. Oh, that we would see what we have in Christ who can change our bitter old nature and give us a new and incorruptible one. Oh, that we have in Christ that we would wallow in this grumbling and complaining. One theologian made an observation as we look at the last of our passage this morning. That only one verse is given to give draw attention to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palms with dates. And he likens that to the idea that the multitude of verses is given about the bitter water, the testing of the Lord. It's something akin to that sorrows can be better than temporary joys for the Christian. For the Christian who's being conformed to the image of Christ by the Spirit of God who indwells in them, sorrows can be better than joys for the Christian. We are very apt to talk more about our bitters than about our sweets, Charles Spurgeon says. And that is a serious fault. Because the story of Marah is not the story of bitterness, ultimately. It's the story of sweet water. The provision of God in that tree to change what was undrinkable to, to change what was life-giving. So it's a serious fault that we talk more about our bitters than about our sweets. If it were well... If we had fewer murmuring words for our sorrows and more songs of thanksgiving for our blessings, yet Holy Writ seems here to speak after the manner of men. And so let us have the four verses for trial and the one verse for the delight. Still as it speaks also after the manner of God, I gather that Marah is, after all, more noteworthy than Elim. And truly there does come to God's people something better out of their troubles than out of joy. So, as it can be, what happens with grumbling as it grows and takes hold is that it seeks to rob the joy of your salvation. Spurgeon again says, God has been very gracious to them. Their sins are washed away and they think that the great joy which they have lately experienced 
will never be taken away from them. This is the new convert. And will never be even diminished. They reckon upon a long day without a cloud. God has favored them so much that they cannot imagine that they shall have any trial or any bitterness. It is not so, beloved. A Christian is seldom long at ease. No sooner does he start out on pilgrimage to heaven than he meets with a difficulty. And as he goes on, he finds out that the way to heaven is not a rolled pathway. It is uphill and down dale, through the mire and through the slow, over mount and through the sea. It is by their trials and afflictions that the people of God are proved to be his children. Consider the words of David when he was seeking to be restored to God after sinning against the Lord through the murdering of Uriah. He says in Psalm fifty-one, twelve, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Oh, there are Spirits would be made willing by the Spirit of God to accept the good that He has for us in all of our circumstances. The good that we, like our Savior, will be beset by many sufferings so that by that perseverance, that work of the Spirit, we may find that the glories of the age to come will be so much sweeter than they would be if we strolled into that land. And so we think about the life in the sage. And through the promise, though the promises of God are sure because of Jesus' obedience, we find that we are still waiting for the full experience of glorification. We find that we still must wait for the new heavens and the new earth to arrive. The full experience of this prize is still to come, making the Christian life a race that must be finished. So therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and every sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If there's an extinguisher for that bitterness and grumbling, it is found in Christ, in his person, and in his work, so that we may not grow weary and lose heart, but consider him who endured such bitterness, such hostility, so that he would win for us a sure and true salvation. Let's go to him now in prayer. O Savior of our souls, O tree who converts us sweetness may you also be the lover of our souls may the joy of our salvation be restored to us by a willing spirit given and bestowed by you 
in your grace and kindness to us. That we may walk in a manner worthy in all the works that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Receiving every circumstance, Lord. Not in bitterness and grumbling, but by the unexplainable work of your Spirit that it may be received in joy and in knowledge of your goodness and mercy to your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.